Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living. Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. Do me a favor. Would you look at somebody near you? Just say, hey, I'm really glad you're here today. Can you just do that? Make them feel at home. And, and uh, if you're in venue, would you do that as well? Hopefully venue is with us by now. And, and uh, we did some things a little different today. And so trying to coordinate these two things to come together is not always easy. If you're joining from home, I want to welcome you as well. If you have your Bibles with you, would you turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 as we continue a series called Because of You. And we've been talking about how to live a life that goes beyond the here and the now. To, to, to leave a legacy that lives beyond our own physical lives. And we've talked about what it is to, uh, to come before the Lord in prayer and the power of prayer and the legacy of prayer and the eternal impact of prayer. And last week we talked about generosity and we challenged us to be generous in every area of our life. Wherever it is that we tend to want to be stingy and hold on to it, God wants us to open up our hands and to be generous in every area of our life with a hilarious spirit, Scripture says. And today we're going to be talking a little bit more about, about just simply making sure our reservations are made in eternity. I don't know how many of you collect things. Any of you collectors? Raise your hand real quick. It's okay. You can acknowledge it. Um, I, I suppose if you're a hoarder, you can raise your hand as well, but that's kind of like collecting. That's actually technically not the same thing, but any of you just real quick here? Yeah, some of you like antiques. Some of you like sports stuff. Uh, how many? I, I'm not going to get into all of them. I'm a collector. I am. In fact, my wife would say I have a little bit of a problem. Um, I would disagree with that. I think I have a big problem. No, it's a, no, I do, and I do collect. I do try really hard, though, is that when my little collector area gets full, I tend to sell things off. So I do tend to get rid of things. So I, I like to say I don't have a psychological problem. I just enjoy it. And, uh, and you know, for those who got into it, it's weird to things that get you into it. I didn't used to, but now I do. And Pastor Dan and I were talking this last week, and we were talking about he's just gone through a couple of funerals in their family, and we were commenting how grandmas, they, they had a lot of stuff. And he said, my goodness, they had a lot of stuff. And we were talking about that. But then he said this comment. He said, they had a lot of stuff, but they did love Jesus. And so I developed a new philosophy of life. It's live large, love Jesus, and leave the mess for your kids. That's what I decided. That's what I'm going to do. My wife, my wife, in fact, my wife and I were at an estate sale. We kind of do that on our day off. We like to go and find, or I like to do it. She goes along. And uh, she, we were at this house, and it was just, had a lot of just junk. And she said, isn't it interesting? You come down to the end of life, and in a few days, it's all gone. That's all there is. And I want to take you to a story in Scripture that really exemplifies that truth. That in the end, all of that goes away. And it's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, you may argue with that. You may say, well, it's not a parable. It's a, it's a real story. They've been arguing about that for about 400 years. I'm not going to argue with you. I happen to think it's a parable. But you'll notice, probably even in your Bible, my Bible doesn't even take a position. It just simply says the rich man and Lazarus. It doesn't say it's a parable. It doesn't say it's a story. Because there are elements of both that are in this passage. But that's okay. Because even if it's a parable, even if it's a real story, we are seeing the Son of God pull back the vision of eternity so that we can understand eternal principles. And in this passage, it's really interesting because Jesus is again trying to help us to understand 
that really only the things that are done for eternity are of utmost importance. Here's what it says. And by the way, you're going to notice in your notes, I did not give you a whole bunch of little blanks to fill in. Decided today, I don't really, I don't want you to care so much about what strikes me. I want you to write down what impacts you about the story. And so if there are things that just strike you, write them down. If they don't, don't have to write anything down. But I want to go through this story together and just make a few observations. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus who was covered with sores, and he was longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and was buried in hell. Hades is the word that he uses. There are two words in the New Testament that Jesus uses when he talks about, uh, about the place of the unrighteous dead. He talks about Hades, but then he also uses the word Gehenna. He uses specifically Hades here. And he says, in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us, uh, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered then, well, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abram replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone come, uh, comes from the dead and goes to them, they will repent. Abraham said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now I think that he is foreshadowing his own resurrection there. I think he is basically saying that there are going to be those that even in the light of the empty grave and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they're still not going to be convinced. Maybe he is talking about the Lazarus that he is going to raise up with the brother of Mary and Martha. But there's no indication in this passage that that Lazarus and the brother of Mary and Martha are the same individual. In fact, I would tell you, I do think this is a parable because it, there are three parables that lead right into this, and there's actually they all start the same way. Now, the reason I say that is, is that when we look at parables, I want to be cautious not to develop too many specific doctrines based only on that parable, I want to make sure that if I develop a, an overarching uh, doctrine that it also fits with the rest of Scripture. And there are some observations we make. For example, um, we see the rich, man had, uh, the rich man had some aspects of him that help us to understand his influence and his power. For you'll notice um, he had purple on. Purple generally is an indication of royalty. He had fine linens, which means that he probably had silk or something such as silk, something in rarity. It just simply 
looks not only at the life of luxury that the guy lived, but also the incredible wealth that the guy had. So he was, he was rich, he was likely powerful. We also notice in this passage uh, about him that, that he had an opulent lifestyle, which means that it wasn't just comfortable, it was beyond comfort. And we also get a sense that the guy was either totally self-absorbed or completely unaware of anything else that anybody else goes through. And the reason we know that is that there is a beggar who is at his gate. And he either pays no attention to him or he never even realized he was there at all. And I, I'm not really sure which I think is worse, although... I happen to think the first one is worse. I think, it's, I think it's one thing to be so absorbed in yourself that you don't even pay attention to anyone else, but I think it's even worse when you do see the need and the guy is sitting there and you still don't do anything about it. i got to be honest with you, beggars are a fact of life all over the world. Now, I realize in the United States we also have them. Um, we have, uh, in fact, I've been in larger cities and you see this, but when you're in third world countries, it is, it is everywhere and it is every day. And we see that, that Lazarus is laid at the front gate. Now, we learn some things about Lazarus. First of all, we know his name, it's Lazarus. But we also see that Lazarus has no ability to have any mobility in and of himself because he's, he's literally laid at the gate. If you look at yours, more than likely, whatever version of Scripture you have, you see that is that he had to be placed there. We, we don't know whether he was maimed or whether or not he was born with a disability from birth. Um, I will tell you this, and it's a very sad fact, is that in third world countries, often children are maimed by their parents or families for the very purpose of begging. But we know that this guy has nothing. He is laying there. He has sores. And those sores are either sores that come from inactivity, such as bed sores. They are sores that come from a medical condition. Um, the translation can also say ulcers. Or the sores are because of um, just simply a hygiene issue. Or it might be because they are sores that have been inflicted by others. The, the word for sores can be translated ulcers or wounds. And so we don't know exactly why he is as he is, but we know that he is immobile, he is unable to care for himself, and he is in tremendous suffering. It says that the dogs would come and lick his wounds, which is not that the dogs were part of his punishment. The dogs actually were the only ones that gave him a little bit of comfort. Uh, in, uh, in specifically ancient times, uh, the saliva of dogs was thought to, to help the healing process. And so it actually brought him just a little bit of comfort, and he was starving. That's the two figures in the story. Now it's interesting because when you go into the rest of the story, each of them in their life came to a point of death. Both of them had whatever they had taken away. Lazarus didn't have very much, but he had that taken away. The rich man had everything, he had that taken away. And now we're seeing the eternal state of both of them. And we get an incredible reveal as the Son of God pulls back 
kind of a curtain on eternity, and he compares the two, Hades, hell, and Abraham's side. Now, Abraham's side would also be equated with paradise, which uh, when, when, uh, when uh, Jesus speaks to the thief on the cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. In our vernacular today, he would be at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That's where Jesus is at. Wherever Jesus is at, that's where we are when we pass away. So that would be heaven, Abraham's side, he uses a very common phrase to talk about the comfort that is there and the care that is given there. And then he uses Hades as the imagery for understanding where the guy was in torment. And you notice that the rich man, we learn some things. For example, there is utter separation that takes place in hell. There is an utter separation, there's an utter aloneness there is a recognition of his own failings. Did you see that in this passage? He saw where he fell short. And he also saw where he was not. Now I don't know if Lazarus could see the other way. We don't exactly see that. But we do know that there's kind of this, this imagery in this picture that he knows where he's not for all of eternity. He has, a very, has very much an awareness of who he is and where he's at. We see there's agony taking place. We could get really descriptive in that because Scripture talks a lot about that. Even in the very name of the word Gehenna, which is another word for hell, there's a, there's a lot of description even in that, the very word Gehenna. But what strikes me is that you, you see in this passage that there's a continue on of his consciousness. He knows what happened in his life he knows his own failings in his life. He doesn't argue that somehow he is not being justly treated. And he remembers that he has five brothers. And what he's asking is for, just send Lazarus to go and talk to them. So there's a real turning that takes place there. By the way, Lazarus, we see that Lazarus is in comfort. We see that he's being cared for. There is no sense of need in him. If we don't get as much of a picture about heaven as we do about hell in this particular passage. But here's what strikes me. In fact, it comes out in verse 26. Spiritually, when you come to the end of this life, both of them lived life, both of them had either much or little in life, both of them came to the end of the life, both of them had everything stripped away. But wherever you are spiritually, when you end this life, there you are. When he says that there is a chasm that has been fixed, it is an imagery that not only is trying to say that there's a chasm, but he says wherever you are eternally when this life is over, that's where you are. There's no changing later. Um, you don't have to worry. He says in this passage, he says, those that are here aren't going to be ending up there. So it's not like you're going to get to heaven. And they said, hey, we made a mistake, right? Isn't that good news, right? Can I just tell you, you wake up in heaven, you're going to stay there. They're not going to say, whoops, wrong ticket, got to go to the other one. That's not how that happens. Same thing, though, when we talk about that separation in Hades and hell. He says, there is no changing minds later. He says, wherever you are spiritually, when this life is over, there you are. Because I will tell you, there is, a, there is a predominant movement that is happening in the world today that basically says God is so loving that later on you will still be given another chance. There is, I, listen, you can believe that, but you cannot support that biblically. 
Okay? So if you're going to use Scripture as your basis of everything you know about who God is and about eternity, you cannot support that. And it comes with this one big question every time I read this passage. If everything is taken away in your life, what do you have left? The rich man had everything in life. But in the end, he had nothing. Lazarus had nothing in life, or very little. But in the end, he had everything. And which is really the most important? You see, we've been talking about legacy. We've been talking about having internal, a eternal impact through prayer. We've We've been talking about eternal impact in our giving, in our generosity. Wouldn't it be something if you cared about all of those things and even practiced them, but never took care of the one thing which would ensure that in the end we have everything? There's another rich man that Jesus speaks to in John chapter 3. In fact, it's in your notes if you'd like to look at the passage. And in John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to another rich man. By the way, uh, it, would, it would be an interesting thing for you to go and look at every time Jesus speaks to rich men. And you're saying, well, hey, fortunately, I'm not a rich person. I don't have to think about that. I will tell you right now that in this room represent the top 1% to 2% in all the world. We are wealthy individuals. Even if you have very little in the United States, comparatively speaking, we are very wealthy. So uh, when he speaks, he is speaking to all of us in this whole area. I know we don't, we're all very, uh, we're very private about that type of a thing. But let's, let's just be honest. In, in the United States, there are, there are very few that would not fit into that top 1% in the world. And so as he looks at us, he really is speaking to us. But how many times he speaks to wealthy individuals, rich young ruler, he speaks to Nicodemus, uh, he, speaks to, he speaks to all types of individuals who have lots of wealth. And so he looks at, at Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is a guy who has some power. Uh, religiously, he's a person in influence, he's a political leader, he's an individual who has some money because of that. He's an individual who has a lot of knowledge, and it's interesting that when he starts talking to Nicodemus about how to make sure that you've made a reservation for heaven, for eternity, to make sure that when life is over, that you have cared for the most important aspect of your life. Jesus says, what good would it be for you to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? He looks at Nicodemus and he says the words that we have probably heard a thousand times. We have seen them in football stadiums. We have seen them on billboards. We've learned it in Sunday school. You've heard me probably use it. 20, 30 times this year, but it is still the same truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Now, for the sake of this conversation, the rich man is perishing, right? He says he will not perish but have eternal life. That is Lazarus. And it's interesting what he says after that. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. You know what that phrase means? It means that we all start off life on the wrong side of the line. All of us start off life needing a Savior. God did not put us in the wrong category. We start off life in the wrong category. He says, so he says, whoever does not believe in him is uh, uh, who believe whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And if I were to boil this passage down to one thing, it's that in order for me to make sure that my eternity is cared for and to make sure that I have stepped across the line, I have to believe in him. The phrase is simply this. Uh, in fact, say it with me. Would you believe in him? Ready? Say it. Believe in him. The word is believe, pastillo. Ain is the word into. It doesn't the word en, it's the word ain. It means to believe into something. He says you must believe into Christ. And the question is, how do we do that? And that weird belief, and I've shared this before, I want you to know this is basic stuff, but I, I thought, how important is it that we just make sure we've got the basic stuff understood? We just celebrated the Lord's Supper. It's a whole celebration of what Christ has done for us, but taking communion does not ensure my eternity. Singing songs does not ensure my eternity. Coming and singing uh, and being together with believers, it's a great thing, but it is not what ensures my eternity. The rich man could have done every one of those things and still not been where he wanted to be in eternity. It all comes down to this believing into Christ. And when you see the word believe, it is the Greek word pastillo, and it means three things. In fact, in your English Bible, if you use an English Bible, that just simply means if you aren't using a German Bible, Spanish Bible, Greek Bible. If you're using a Greek Bible, I, I'm impressed and I'd like to talk to you afterwards. You should be up here. <laughs> okay. But if you have an English Bible, you will notice that that word is translated three different ways. And the reason for it is, not because people are confused, is that the word is so rich and so deep, it takes three or four English words to understand the meaning of it. The first word for believe means to intellectually accept. It means I believe something. And the reason I say intellectually accept is it doesn't mean that I intellectually understand everything that I accept. Let me ask this real quick. How many of you believe in the law of gravity? How many of you can explain how gravity works? Not as many. How many of you can give the coefficient equation whereby if an object of mass is traveling in a horizontal uh, 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 direction, the impact formula of the object with gravity that will determine when it will hit the ground if it is thrown. Anybody? There might be one or two in our entire congregation. I can't either. But I believe it. We do this all the time. Well, I don't understand how this works. I don't understand how most of everything works. Can I just be honest with you? I don't know how a microwave works. But I still expect every time I put a cup of coffee in there, it's going to get hot. Right? 
I don't know how it works. Just because I don't understand how something works does not mean that I don't intellectually accept that it, this is how it works. And so the first thing I have to intellectually accept is that God loves me. Can we say that together? God loves me. Would you look at someone near you and just say, he even loves you. Do that, would you? He even loves you. Why? Because God so loved the world. That means every, in fact, I'm going to have you give me your name. Okay, my name is Phil. Your name is? God loves all of those names. Why? Because God loves and God affirms his love, and he has proven his love. And you may not understand why God loves you, because I sure don't understand why God loves me, but he loves me, and I accept that truth. Why? So that he gave his one and only son. The second thing I have to believe is that I have the need to be rescued spiritually. And to believe that I have a spiritual need to be rescued means that I am not going to be able to spiritually rescue myself. And it is a very humbling thing when you realize that you are not going to be able to do this in your own strength. He says, those who do not believe in him stand condemned already. Why? Because of the sinfulness of humanity. Every single individual starts off life needing a Savior, and you're never going to earn it in your own strength. And I have been stuck a number of times. I have been stuck in mud. Just happened to me six months ago. And boy was I embarrassed because Pastor Ryan was with me. And I drove back into a field and there was no way I was driving back out of that field. And uh, so I had to get Shane Palmateer to come over with a try. You know how embarrassing it is to have to call somebody and say, is there any chance you can come and pull me out with your tractor? I've been stuck in the snow. I have been stuck on the Pacific Ocean with Pastor Calvin, and it was completely his fault, by the way. And there is this drudge, uh, this, this, uh, this horrible knot in your gut. Any of you ever been stuck? Any of you? There's this horrible feeling in your gut. When you realize I'm in such a mess, I'll never get out unless somebody else comes and helps me. The scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And when you intellectually accept you're not getting out of this mess in your own, that is the beginning of salvation. That is the beginning of your rescue. Which leads to number three. I have to believe that Jesus is God's provision for my rescue. Now there's a lot of other things I hope you believe. There's a lot of other things I think you should believe. But can I just tell you that if you do not... And, and by the way, I, I live this stuff but I honestly cannot fully comprehend how, how, that when Jesus was on the cross, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for me, that somehow, by believing and accepting the salvation that comes in him, 
I now become the righteousness of God. I become the right. I was darkness, Paul says. Now I am light in Jesus Christ. And he who knew no sin took on my sin. I have no, if you're honest, you can't comprehend that. But I believe it. And I intellectually accept it. But that's not enough. Because the word is also translated as trust. Say that with me, would you? Trust. Trust is a heart dependency on what I say that I intellectually accept. In fact, Scripture tells me that it's by trusting in Jesus Christ. That means I'm putting all of my weight, I'm putting, I'm leaning completely upon the weight that, that or, or putting all my weight on the, the spiritual reality that it's only by p- trusting in what Christ has done for me that I can ever know what it is to have eternity with him. And the last word is faith. Say that with me, would you? Faith. And faith means that I willfully am accepting this for myself. Now get this. Whenever you see the word faith, it is the root word pistio in the Greek, in the New Testament. Every time you see the word trust, it is the word pistio. Every time you see the word believe in the New Testament, it is the same root word, pistio. They are all the same word, but because of context, they translate it just a little bit different. So sometimes they talk about intellectual believing and accepting, and sometimes it talks about the heart needing to depend, and sometimes by faith, I need to accept this for myself. Why? Because that's how big and how broad and how encompassing it is to step across the line of salvation and step into a relationship with Christ. And Paul said, or I'm sorry, Jesus says to Nicodemus that Nicodemus, when you When you believe in me, you don't just understand me. You don't just accept me. But with your whole heart, you embrace me. And you accept what I can do for you that you could never do for yourself. That is the key for moving from perishing to eternal life. That is the key from stepping into an eternity apart from me into an eternity with me. That's the key. That's the difference. And that's the distinction between the rich man and Lazarus. And wouldn't it be the height of foolishness to come to church and to talk about generosity and to sing the songs and to practice prayer and to receive and take communion and having never made the one commitment that would actually make a difference in our eternity. We have Bruce and Sherry uh, go ahead and come up, and Pastor Ryan, you can move. And I was reflecting Thursday over the last 15, 16, 17 years. In fact, I could go back to 1989 when I first met and met with a guy at his deathbed. And I, I have had uh, opportunity and the privilege to... Uh, to work with a lot of people. And I have actually worked with a lot of people that are very resistant to any things of faith. Um, and, I, and I will tell you that almost to a person, mostly, mostly, they're not, they're not mean people or bad people. Um, 
The Lord just wasn't important to him. A number of years ago, I was actually in this worship center doing a funeral for a businessman who, by all accounts, everybody knew he was not Christian. That's not me being judgmental. That is just simply everybody acknowledged it. In the last several months of his life, he had cancer. I visited him a number of times and had the opportunity to have these conversations with him. Remember the moment when I was able to just share with him the gospel and to just lay that before him. And I remember during his funeral where palpably it almost became almost a, a mocking sense of laughter because everybody knew that it made no sense for us to be hosting that funeral at this church. In fact, he, he asked me if I would do his funeral. He wasn't even sure if I'd be willing to, do, to bury him. But I remember what he said right after I agreed to doing it. He said, now you're not going to preach too long, are you? <laughs> he knew me pretty well. I think what I said to him was, I, I don't think you'll care. But I remember sitting there as I, as I looked around the room and I said, now I think all of us that are in this room realize that he didn't have a whole lot of use for preachers, for church, or for any of the stuff I'm talking about. But what you don't know is what became important to him in the last month of his life. And I shared some of the stories of being able to just simply share this with him and his receptivity to the gospel. And I often, as often will happen when a person is nearing their end, I'll, I just, I pray for them and then I, I will pray scripture over them and oftentimes I'll sing over them. It's just something, I don't know, the Lord just has me do. And I said, it, it became very important to him in the last days of his life. And I guarantee that for every person in this room, every person in venue, every person in this world, what I'm talking about will become very important if you're given the opportunity to be aware at the end of your life. And if it's going to be important to you then, don't you think it ought to be important to you now? This really is not a hard sell. I hope you don't see it that way. This is a guy who deeply loves you. That simply has walked long enough to know what becomes important later. And if it's important later, then it by well better be important. And so, Father, as we close our time together, I love that you don't make you, make, you make accepting a relationship with you very simple, and yet sometimes it's very hard. Because the simplicity is, is that, Jesus, I need to acknowledge that I'm lost. And I'll never be able to do this on my own. But I believe that you can and you have so Lord I believe you love me 
and I believe you died for me so that I can know what it is to have a relationship with you and I can have an eternity with you. And I'm so sorry that I have tried to do all of this on my own when what you've done is ask me to trust you and believe in you. So Lord, right now, that's what I'm doing. By faith, I accept what you offer. Please forgive me. And this isn't because I'm afraid of what happens next, although I've got to be honest, there's a little bit of that. I really want you to lead my life, and I want you to make me into the man of God, the woman of God that you want me to be. By faith, I step into a relationship with you. Make me your child. I say yes to you in Jesus' name. Now, I realize time is fleeing here a little bit, but heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Nobody's really looking around except myself. I just real quick, you just want to raise your hand and say, I'm making that step today, Pastor. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Don't Nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to be ashamed of. That's awesome. Anyone else? Just real quick. I want to pray for you. That's why I just want you to acknowledge that. It says if I'm afraid to acknowledge him, he'll, he'll won't acknowledge me. So is anybody else? Lord, I love those who have just responded very quickly. And I don't have to walk in uncertainty, and I don't have to walk in doubt. Lord, I pray against the accuser of the brethren that we don't have to listen to the enemy. Next time the enemy says you're not really a child of God, Lord, all we have to do is say, nope, back here on October, what is this, 20th, 2018, I accepted Christ, I committed my heart to him, and he is faithful. Even when I'm faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And so, Lord, I am going to follow you. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living.